Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to talk tonight about probably my favorite story, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and um, it's the story of Rahab, the prostitute. And just a side note, every time Rahab is referred to in the Bible, she's called Rahab the prostitute. Now, we'll talk about that later on, but how would you like to be known in infamy forever as <laughs> Rahab the prostitute? But it's an exciting story. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and Lord willing, we will finish Hebrews 11 tonight. Um, and it's been a great long chapter, but it's been a great chapter because we've looked at all these Old Testament characters and how their faith was active and how God worked in their lives. So this is going to bring us to a lot of Old Testament stories kind of crunched into one. Kind of towards the end of the chapter, he starts kind of giving more summary statements about a lot of sections of the Old Testament. So let's um, pick up in verse 29. This is kind of where we left off last week. So is everybody there? Hebrews 11, verse 29. By faith... The people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay. So... We talked about, let's just retrace our steps. We talked about Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Moses, and now we get to really Joshua, but Joshua is not so much mentioned. It's more the people crossed um, the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho came down. It's interesting, what generation... Or what group of people did he purposely pass over that didn't have faith? Yeah, the 40-year the 40 wilderness wanderings. Um, he doesn't mention them. He just kind of skips right over Moses to the, the walls of Jericho coming down. Um, and so when they're at the, the base of the Red Sea, this is what God says to them. Um, in Exodus 14, 15, and 16, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. 
Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through on dry ground. Uh, Verse 29 says, By faith people cross the Red Sea as on dry land. Uh, Moses was told to let go forward, move forward. And that's what faith is. Faith is moving forward, no hesitation, trusting God at His word, immediate. Remember this by faith, by faith, by faith. It's talked about over and over again here in the book of Hebrews. It's that active faith that responds with immediate obedience. When God calls you to do something, you respond immediately. Okay? So we skip over that 40-year gener- the 40-year wilderness wanderings and we go right to the walls of Jericho falling down. And that's really tied into the story of Rahab. Now Rahab is mentioned. Rahab. Yes, Jerry, did you have a question? Yes. Why does in Hebrews he say as if on dry land, and in Exodus it says the people uh, may go through the sea on dry land. Uh, my translation says, by faith the people cross the Red Sea as on dry land. Um, it says as if on dry land. Like make it sound like they really didn't? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your translation. Um, I'm not sure why it translates it that way. Uh, but we know literally they did cross on dry land. Um, I'll tell you guys a story. Um, when, I was, when I was at an unnamed college in Texas called Baylor, uh, my, 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 uh, my, freshman year, my freshman year in college, I was only there one semester, but um, I took the Old Testament class, and um, the professor was really liberal. He was basically saying, you know, it wasn't really the Red Sea. It was the Sea of Reeds, and it was a little marshy thing. And so when the Israelites, you know, went across the Red Sea, it really wasn't a parting. It was more like they were walking across marshland. And, and so and all, the people, all the kids were like, you know, wow, I've never heard that before. And then one student raised his hand and said, well, sir, can I just ask you a question? That makes it an even greater miracle then because to drown the whole Israel, you know, Egyptian army in little marshlands is a huge miracle. What do you think about that? And, and the professor didn't really have anything to say about that. And so it was not a little marshy. It was, and I'm not sure if it's like the Ten Commandments movie where, you know, they, but, but it was a parting of the sea, literally walking on dry land, literally. So we, we believe that. So let's talk about Rahab, okay? So let's go back to Joshua, chapter 2, and we're going to spend some time in Joshua because we see the story of Rahab and the spies and, the, and basically, um, it's basically a reconnaissance mission because once they cross over into the promised land, they actually have to start occupying the land. They have to actually start defeating cities and going into to warfare. Actually, Joshua was a military leader. And so he sends these spies in, and these spies aren't James Bond-type spies. You actually find out they're actually kind of, they're not very good spies. Um, And so they're sent in to um, scout out the land because Jericho was one of the key cities that needs to be taken. So let's read um, Joshua 2, 1 through 14. Everybody there? Joshua 2, 1 through 14. This is kind of the story that the writer of Hebrews is drawing us back to. It's all tied together with Rahab, the hiding of the spies, Jericho. It all ties together. So Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies, or sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. See, they're not very good spies, are they? Because they're, they're already found out. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. 
But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God, in the heavens above and on the earth. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Okay, here's the story. These two men go in to spy out the land, and where do they just coincidentally happen to end up? Rahab's house. Okay, what is Rahab? A prostitute. Her house is probably like a tavern, a, a, a house of ill repute, where people are traveling back and forth, coming and going. And so there's a lot of, you know, you've seen the movies where you go into these you know, weird places where, where the, the, the main characters get found out because everybody's whispering and, you know, they find out the story. And so basically of all places to end up, they somehow providentially, was, is it by luck? No, they providentially end up at, at Rahab's house. Now, we have to ask the question, Rahab, th- this is a pr- not necessarily a problem, this has always been an issue in, in the story. How, what, how does, what does Rahab do? She hides the spies, but what does she do? She lies. Okay, so let's just talk about a couple of things here. She is a pagan. And she's acting on her pagan nature. Just to ask you a couple of questions. Does she have the Ten Commandments? Does she know about the law of God? Okay. So she is acting paganly and she's lying. Okay. Nowhere in the Bible is she ever commended for lying. She's not, she's not held up as a virtue for her lying. So we don't want to look at Rahab and say, well, there's a... There's an escape clause. God gives us permission to lie because Rahab lied. We have to realize that this is a story, and it does not teach us specifically that it's okay to lie. What we see here is a pagan Gentile acting out of her nature and God using that to bring about his purposes. Now, you can deal with that all you want. What do we know the rest of the Bible teaches? What does the Ten Commandments teach? Thou shalt not bear witness. Okay, so this is not an excuse for you to go out and lie. We have a woman here that lies. She is known as being a prostitute. That's what she's known for. But she's never known for being Rahab the liar. Okay, so she's never, she's never honored for her lying. So the question we've got to ask then is this. Here's the question. What makes her faith so amazing? Because she's in the hall of faith. She shows up in Hebrews 11 along with Abraham and Moses 
Okay, the prostitute. So we have to question, why is she even included in the hall of faith? What do we truly see about her faith that is remarkable? And so we're going to see three things about her faith tonight that really are, are exciting when you think about who she is. So let's just talk about Rahab's background. What is she? She is a Gentile. She is a woman. And she is a prostitute. A, pro- a prostitute? I, yeah, I, says it right there. I've seen all kinds of things that talk about in the past that talk about her being an innkeeper, basically. The text, all throughout the scripture, she's called the prostitute. It says it right there. I, the word zona means both, so that's why I wonder. A keeper of the inn. She's a prostitute. Okay. Even if she keeps the inn, I think she's a prostitute. Okay. I don't think, I mean, to me, there's no, there's no debate. Now, there may be some people that debate it. I think that's the point. And we'll get to this later. It's, all right, so, so what are, in this culture, in a Hebrew culture, just think about it, what three marks are against her, just from the bat? Number one, she's, is she Jewish? No. Is she a man in a male-dominated site? No. And, and is she a, a, does she have a nice career? Okay. So no. So so right from the very beginning, you look at Rahab and you say, "Now wait a minute. Here we have a woman that has three strikes against her in that culture. She's Gentile, she's a woman, and she's a prostitute. What makes her faith so amazing?" And let's see what comes out of her mouth. Okay. So here's the first thing that we see about Rahab. God used the testimonies of others to awaken her faith. Okay. Look at verses eight and ten. Back in chapter 2, verses 8, 8 through 10. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and when you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. What is she hearing about? She's hearing about the crossing of the Red Sea. She's hearing about all these exploits that the Israelites did. So the question we've got to ask is, how in the world did she hear about these things? It doesn't take that hard to figure it out. She's a prostitute. I mean, let's not water this down. Um, She's probably heard these traveling merchants tell the stories of the God of Israel, the very men that paid for her services. She probably heard, they probably came in to the tavern and told her stories about what God had done in Israel. Now, the question is, how did she respond when she heard these testimonies? When she heard about the God of Israel, how did she respond to these testimonies? Look at verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, these testimonies, when we heard about the Red Sea, when we turned about your military conquest, when we heard about what God had done, what does it say there in verse 11? Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heavens above and on the earth below. It said that her heart melted. She was under strong conviction when she heard this. When she heard a testimony about God, she is under conviction. Do you remember another woman in the Bible who, when was given the testimony about God, came under conviction? In Acts 16, 14, we have another woman, Lydia. 
One who heard us, this is when Paul goes to Philippi, he goes down by the river. One was a woman named, it should be Lydia, not Lydia. Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. What is God doing to Rahab, the Gentile prostitute, when she hears these testimonies? God's beginning to do a work in her to bring her under conviction. So let's talk about personal testimony for a moment. What's the power of a personal testimony? Now, your personal testimony is not the gospel. Okay, Your story of how you got saved is not the gospel. It's important, but it's not the gospel. What's the gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. Now, you can share the gospel, and you can share your testimony. What does God often do when you share that? Does He bring conviction on lost people? Yeah, you'd hope He does. I mean, not, not always, but when you verbally share your testimony or when you verbally share the gospel, that's how God begins to awaken faith in those that are lost. So it's important for us to share our testimony, share the gospel, share the great things God has done. Okay, How will they believe in Jesus unless they hear about Jesus? How will they hear about Jesus unless you... Tell them. I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing Romans 10 here for a moment. So never underestimate the power of the gospel out of your mouth to a lost person where God can awaken faith in them. God can bring them under conviction. The amazing thing about this is that she had never seen any of these things. She never saw the Red Sea crossing. She never saw the pillar of smoke. Never saw the pillar of fire. Never had manna and quail come down. Didn't see the crossing of the Red Sea. Didn't even see the crossing of the Jordan River. All she did was, what does it say? She heard about these things. And how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so it's important for us to share the gospel verbally so that people can hear. So the first thing we see about Rahab is that God uses the testimony of others. And ironically, who are the others? People passing through her tavern to tell her about the great and mighty works of God, and she comes under conviction. Our hearts melted when we heard about this. Okay? Now, here's what's even more amazing. The second thing we see about Rahab's faith is that she makes a solid confession of trust in the only true God. Look at verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Look at this. For the Lord your God, He is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She acknowledged that God is the Lord. Notice what she says. For the Lord your God, the Lord Yahweh. That's a strong confession out of the mouth of a Gentile. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is God. She makes no fuzzy, politically correct, ambiguous statement about this God. She emphatically confesses that the Lord is God and the heavens above and the earth beneath. She's bowing before the absolute sovereignty of the living God. Just a bold confession. Basically, in our culture, it would be the equivalent of Jesus is the only way. This pagan Gentile prostitute is a lot more bold than most Christians are today. What is she saying? The Lord, your God, He is God He is sovereign over heaven and over earth. I think this is her transformation or quote-unquote salvation experience, if you will. That that moment where she comes to understand who the God of Israel was, Yahweh the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and she confesses faith in Him. 
Now, she's making a bold statement. What could she have said? What could she have said? The Lord your God is one among many gods. We worship Baal. We worship Ashtaroth. We worship all these gods, and your God is one among many, and we will serve him along with our other gods. Does she say that? What does she say? The Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a, that's a statement of sovereignty. Because they had tribal deities, local deities. They had a deity over rain and deity over mountains, a deity, all these different gods. She's saying, no, he's sovereign over, over the entire universe. Yes, Cindy. Yeah. She immediately goes, and then what she says to him is, Your God is God. And when you guys come in and destroy everything, save my family. Mm-hmm. So there is no question that Israel is not going to come in and do this because God is leading them. Yeah. I mean, in her mind, it's a set thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Here's the interesting thing here's what she confesses. What does she confess there in verse 11? The Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, That is a confession of Scripture that she did not even know she was saying. And how do I know that? Well, years earlier in Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and lay it to your hearts that the Lord is God in heaven above, on the earth beneath there is no other. That was what Moses taught the Israelites. And she's confessing that because God has awakened faith in her. Now, there's another statement that you may not have caught back up in verse 9. What does she say? I know that the Lord has given you the land. <laughs> what is she saying there? God is sovereign. God is in control. God has given you, God has already given you this land. Now, do they have the land yet? All she knows is two spies showed up at her tavern. Does she know who Joshua is? All she's heard is testimonies. She's heard of God's power. And in her mind, what does she say? I already know that I already know Jericho's yours because God's given it to you. God is sovereign. He's, he's Lord over heaven and earth. All I ask is that when you come to conquer, you save me and my family because I know it's a done deal, like what you're saying, Cindy. Here's the thing about Rahab. She has a better understanding of God than most Christians. She doesn't balk at the absolute sovereignty of God. She doesn't balk at the exclusivity that there's only one way of salvation. This pagan prostitute makes one of the most profound confessions in faith from the mouth of a Gentile in the entire Bible. And it's from the mouth of a prostitute. Now, here's the third thing we see about her. And this is kind of have to read between the lines on this one. Thirdly, she knows that she deserves wrath and not mercy. Notice what she continues to say in verses 12 through 14. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me of my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mothers, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. What's she saying? She basically says, I know, I know our family's toast. And we really are going to get killed. And it's a done deal because your God is sovereign. He helped you cross the Red Sea. You defeated all these enemies. Does she ever say, you know what? God's really unfair to do this. You know what? We, 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 we Jerichoites, I don't know if that's what they're called, <laughs> we deserve to be spared because we're so good. Does she ever say, God, you have no right to come in and wipe us out? 
Never once does Rahab plead her case with God as if somehow he's obligated to save her. That's an understanding of true salvation. When you come to realize that God owes us nothing and you cast yourself at his mercy alone. So three things about Rahab. Number one, God uses the testimony of others to awaken faith in her. Number two, she makes this bold confession that that God is the only God. And number three, she doesn't plead with God and say, God, you're unfair to do this. All she said is, what's her, what's her, what's one thing she says? When your God comes to execute justice on our town, please save me and my family. Now, what do we say in salvation? God, on the day of judgment, when you come, and God, I know that I deserve hell because of my sin, please save me because you're the only God. Jesus, you're the only way. You're the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. I trust in you. And we see that in the pages of the Old Testament with a Gentile prostitute. Now, let's continue to see how this is going to play itself out. So let's read verses 15 through 20. Yes, Joe. I think, I think one thing we might want to look at, too, is this idea of her heart melting. They were afraid. They, they knew everything else that God had done. They, she'd obviously heard the stories about Egypt is ransacked, and by this mm-hmm. time, 40 years later, they know the, the fallout by that. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually the fear of the Lord, because Proverbs says, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, yeah. or all wisdom. And yeah. so I think that's probably part of our problem, even as Christians today, is we don't really fear God as much as we yeah. should. Yeah, that's a great point. We probably point. don't honor Him and truly really fear Him. I mean, He has every right to come across the river and yeah. wipe us out. Yeah, and uh, I think when you know, it says that her heart, their hearts melted. Mm-hmm. There's no spirit left because they understood that yeah. hey, here comes the judgment yeah. for us. And, yeah. and when we talk to people, you know, I think a lot of people don't even understand how much their sin yeah. affects them. And when we're witnessing, you know, we have to talk about sin, but they really don't understand. Yeah. The wages of sin. Yeah. I mean, you know. Right. They don't. There's un- not that fear of God. Right. Or, and that's a great point. Um, that's something we've lost in our culture is the fear of the Lord in our witnessing. Um, and, and let's talk about the fear of the Lord for a moment. I think I've done this maybe a couple years ago, so I'm sure all of you remember from that far back. But there's, two, there's two types of fear of the Lord that you look at in the Bible. Um, there's a terror fear and there's a worship fear. And it really depends upon... It really depends upon the context. the 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 Hebrew word is is yar, and the Greek word is is phobos. They're both pretty much the same. That's where we get the word phobia. They both mean fear, but depending on the context, one's a terror fear and one's a worship fear. Now let me give you an example. When Rahab hears about what God has done, it's almost like a terror fear. It's like we deserve to be killed. When Isaiah sees, you know, the glory of God in the throne room and he says, I'm undone, that's a terror fear. There's this whole idea that terror fear is a fear that a lost person has in the face of a holy God where you come under strong conviction and realize God has every right to kill you or to send you to hell or whatever. That's a terror fear. Worship fear, I think, is a fear that we as Christians have in the sense that we still fear God But we do not approach God in terror because now He's our Father. So God, we relate to God as Father, as Christians, 
And so, yes, our Father can discipline us. And yes, we should still fear Him. And so it's more of a worship fear. A lost person relates to God not as a father. They relate to God as a judge. God is not their father yet until they become a Christian. And so there's two types of fear, I think, shown in the Bible. Lost people should have a terror fear of God as their judge. When they become a Christian, we relate to God as Father, and we have a worship fear. But either way, you're still in awe. You're still in, um, in reverence of who this God is. And so I think what's oftentimes lost is both. As Christians, we don't actually fear the Lord. And I think for lost people, we don't, we don't get them scared enough of their sin. That's kind of a weird way of putting it. Would you agree? Well, it's not popular right now because you yeah. know, you know, yeah. and I know that if we go out there and say the turn and burn message, you know, here's hell, you better you're, you just turn people off. People yeah. don't even want to listen to that because they yeah. don't have it in fear of their sin. Yeah. You're just a crazy person because you're talking about I'm going to go to hell. Yeah. But if it's true, isn't it the most loving thing we can do is warn people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that I mean, in other countries, they really are understanding oh, yeah. fear and they're getting that and it's turning into the worship fear yeah and so yeah yeah i guess what we should be fearing right now is that um god's wrath may come to us <laughs> yeah yeah i could go off on a tangent on god's wrath coming to us but you know i think go part of that is where our culture has gone because if you look in the past i'm gonna come back here so you get on the mic if you ever read sinners in the hands of an angry god it's the terror fear. I yeah. mean, you read that, and, and that is exactly what he is going for. Mm-hmm. This is this is a pure, just, perfect, holy God, mm-hmm. and you're a sinner. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a good thing to be. The yeah. only thing keeping you from hell is the hand of this angry God who yeah. hates your yeah. sin. <laughs> well, we don't talk about that. Right, right. <laughs> and I think the reason is is because third world countries and fourth world countries, or whatever you want to call it, they know the fear of their governments. Yeah. So they can transition into that, whereas we in the United States, we don't know fear from our, we think they're clowns. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me just tell you guys something about, a lot of people have not read all of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you read all of it? Because the very last paragraph of Sinners in the Angry Hands of God is probably the strongest gospel presentation you'll ever hear. Jonathan Edwards basically is pleading. He's like, Come to Christ. His arms are wide open. Come to Jesus. He will save you. He will love you. I mean, after this whole long thing about he dangles you over the pit of hell like a spider, <laughs> the very last part of Sinners in the Hands of Anger God is this, you can escape all that by coming to Christ. It's very, very strongly evangelistic. So just don't characterize Jonathan Edwards in that sermon as if it's all law and no gospel. And so, but, but, but we need that. You need... You need to know how bad sin is and how much you're a sinner before you can understand the beauty of salvation. And I think that a lot of times we, want, we, we, don't, let, we don't let people linger in their terror fear long enough to truly come under conviction and let the Holy Spirit work. And that's what happens to Rahab. She comes under this fear. That's a good point, Joe. Good point. Okay, so we are in verses 15 through 21. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, that afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. 
Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall all be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, this blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of, your, of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, there's been a lot of debate about what the scarlet cord is. It's a signal. It's a red cord to hang in the window. Some people think that that represents, like, there's a lot of different things. What most scholars believe why it was red, it was the red light district. Okay? I mean, that was what she was. And so it had to be a red cord because I don't know if I believe in that or not. But but basically, it's very similar to the Passover that we saw last week. Think about it this way. There's a lot of Passover similarities here. Just as Israel would only be saved if they had the blood of the Lamb visibly sprinkled on their doorpost, the scarlet cord must be visibly seen in order for Rahab to escape God's wrath. The whole thing is that a red cord is easily seen. Yeah, it's easily seen. And it has to be seen. That's what it says there. It has to be out there. And what does he say? Do not go outside of your house. What did he tell it to the Passover people? Don't go outside your house. When, when, when God passes over in judgment over Jericho and he sees the red cord, you and your house will be saved, just like God told them um, in, in, the, in the Passover. And so in both situations, the Israelites had to stay in the house to be protected. They couldn't go out or they would be touched by the destroyer. In the same way, Rahab and her family were not under any circumstances to go out of their house as well. So the scarlet cord really represents this idea of God passing over sinners who deserve to die when he sees a substitute. In the Passover, it was the blood of a lamb. Here, it's the scarlet cord. Okay? Was she kind of like saved in a way? Yes. And we will get to that. She was saved. She was saved from death when the Israelites attacked Jericho. But more importantly, she was saved spiritually as a child of God. Does that that make sense? Okay. So let's fast forward to Joshua chapter 5 and, and, and... there's some other things that happen. They cross over the Jordan River. Um, we get to chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. This is the whole idea of the, the Joshua, the battle of Jericho. Okay, so this is it right here, okay? When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you, with, are you, are you, are you for us or are you against us? He's like, I'm neither. I'm here to take over. So he said, No, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, there's some debate as to who this man is that draws the sword. Is it the angel of the Lord, or is it a pre-incarnate Christ? We really don't know. All we know is that he says, this is holy ground, take off your sandals. Okay? And so here's the 
tactic, the military strategy. What's the military strategy they're supposed to do? Get your priests and your Levites and your trumpets. Get your worship leaders and just walk around the city. How many times? Six days. And then on the seventh day, blow your trumpets and then the walls will fall down. Now, does that make any sense as far as a military strategy at all? If you were a military leader, would you be like, that'd be like, okay, we're going to go out with our kazoos and our banjos and we're just going to kind of go against the Russian army with all their torpedo. I mean, it's just like, doesn't make any sense. But what does Hebrews 11 say? By fa- Let's go back to Hebrews 11 because this is where we are. <clears throat> he says, by faith, there in verse 30, Hebrews 11.30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So this was an act of faith, a real act of faith, to trust God that you're going to go fight a battle without, without military weapons. Your, 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 war, your worship is your warfare. And so here's what faith is for these people. Authentic faith is ready, it has a readiness to act on instructions that may sound foolish. Has God ever asked you to do something Stupid? That the world may think of as stupid? That the world may think of as foolhardy? Um, So the walls fell down. You know the story. We'll kind of skip over that whole part. The walls fall down and everyone in Jericho was destroyed except for one family. A family with a scarlet cord outside their window. So let's go to chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. Yes. Archaeological proof for scripture. It's good. Verification. Verification. So Joshua 6, verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the walls fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, but to the two men that spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So I'm wondering if she didn't do it, if her family and her would have never been saved. If she had not what? Save the, uh, save the two guys. Well, God orchestrated all that, so it happened. So here's the issue. Before 
she was temporarily put outside the camp. Okay, she was put outside the camp until they killed everything. But now she lived, it's very important, she lived in Israel to this day. What is that telling us? She went from, what did she go from being? She went from being a Gentile to an Israelite. And how did, she, how, how did her conversion happen? By faith. She became one of the, the covenant community people of the Israelites. She was a Gentile convert into the people of God. She was an outsider saved by grace. She's now in the fold. Yeah, now she's living in worship. Now she's living in worship fear as the people of God. Now, is that the end of the story? There's there's even something more exciting. There's something far greater at stake here in this pagan gentile prostitute's salvation. Do you guys know what the rest of the story? Here's the rest of the story. She marries a man named Salmon, and they have a child named Boaz. And Boaz marries another pagan Gentile woman from the land of Moab named Ruth, another outsider who's saved by God's grace. And Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who then becomes the greatest king in Israel. So King David's great-great-grandmother is Rahab. Now, is that, is that awesome? So part of David's lineage is from a Gentile pagan prostitute whom God saved by grace and brought into God's family. That would be part of uh, Jesus'. We're going to get there. That's not the end of the story yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're, you're thinking. You're, you're thinking biblically, though. In Matthew chapter one, you have the genealogy of Jesus. Let's just turn to Matthew chapter one for a moment. You have the genealogy of Jesus. And sometimes you skip over these genealogies like, why am I reading all these names? So-and-so begat so-and-so, and and who cares? Genealogies are there for a reason. But in the genealogy of Jesus, there are five names of women. There are five women listed in 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 Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. So it's interesting the women that show up on the list. So let's just um, see if you can find them there. So in um, verse 3, you've got Tamar. In verse 5, you got Rahab. In verse 5, you have Ruth. In verse 6, you have um, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And then um, you, you go all the way down to Mary in verse 16. Those are the five women. So it's interesting. All the women on the list had something interesting related to their sexuality. Let's just be real honest. Okay? Scandalous, if you will. Think about Tamar. Remember Tamar? She dressed up as a sinful woman. She dressed up as a prostitute, and she tricked her uncle. Was it her uncle Judah? Her father-in-law Judah. Judah. Okay? Okay, so she's in the genealogy. Ruth, we know she was a Gentile outsider from Moab. Bathsheba, she was the one who David took advantage of. Mary, it was scandalous. I mean, there was nothing wrong with her sexually, but she was a virgin. Um, but she was with child, and so that was kind of scandalous. But then notice who else shows up on the list. Rahab. So here's the amazing thing about it, to me. That in the lineage of Jesus is a pagan prostitute who was saved by grace. 
Her redemption comes full circle in the birth of the true son of David, Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate Passover lamb to die for his people. While she held a scarlet cord outside the window as a signal for salvation, Jesus died on the cross and poured out his scarlet blood for the redemption of his people. Rahab was a woman who used her womanhood in sexual perversion and gross immorality. She was a prostitute. And yet, in a very amazing display of God's grace, her womanhood has now been redeemed to bring about the lineage and eventual birth of Jesus. Her womanhood was redeemed. Why is she still called Rahab the prostitute, even in Hebrews 11? What's that a reminder of? God saves sinners. It's a reminder to us that God can save the worst of sinners. That there's no body so far outside the reach of God's grace that His, His hand of mercy can't reach down and save them out of the sewer of, of sin that they're in. And so what her perversion was became her redemption. What was her occupation? Prostitution. But here she's honored for being in the lineage of Jesus. Her giving birth to Boaz brings about Jesus. So you could say this. No Rahab, no Jesus. <laughs> I mean, God orchestrated it. I mean, he's in, she's in the genealogy. And so it comes full circle that God redeemed her, her womanhood. She used her womanhood in sin. God redeemed her womanhood to bring about the Savior who would die, eventually be her Savior. Okay. All right. Well, let's keep moving through Hebrews chapter 11. I just love the story of Rahab. It gives us great hope that God can take outsiders, Gentiles, bad, quote-unquote bad people, we're all bad people, and save them by grace and do, a, and do an amazing work of transformation and, and bring her into the fold of God's people. Okay. Yes. A very smart woman told me once, it wasn't, just, uh, it wasn't just the women in that lineage that have, like, sorted past. David called for oh, yeah. Bathsheba. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's his face went down and slept Tomorrow. Yeah, no. Judah. Yeah. yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, it wasn't just the woman's <laughs> fault. Yeah, yeah. When you look, at, here's the thing about it, guys. Here's a hall of faith. And we have Abraham. Abraham lied twice. Noah got drunk. Jacob was really bad. <laughs> Isaac was kind of dim witted at the end of his life. You know, Joseph's probably, there's really not a lot of bad things that Joseph ever did. He's probably a pretty, pretty godly man. David. Okay. So even in the hall of faith and in the lineage of Christ, it shows us that imperfect people, sinners, have been saved by grace. It gives us great hope. Yes. Yeah, we're not excusing. Yeah, you have to repent of those sins. We're not excusing those saying, oh, they get a free pass. We're just saying that, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That there is repentance is required for salvation. We don't want to we don't want to sell cheap grace and tell people, yeah, you can just do whatever you want and keep on sinning. God loves forgiving. It's a great relationship. Um, just just keep it up because after all, you know, once saved, always say, I've got your free ticket to heaven. I can live however I want. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that God does save sinners by grace alone. Yes, Michelle. Doesn't that include Peter? The one that yeah, Peter too. Peter. Yeah. He denied. Denied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just not in the Old Testament, so we're kind of looking at these old, but he's, he's an example of a New Testament. Paul was a blasphemer and a murderer before he got saved. 
I mean, he even says, I was the worst of, I was the chief of sinners. So. All right, well, let's, let's keep going through, and let's look at these, um, these other heroes. We start getting to more of a summary. Like, you got big chunks of, like, Genesis and Exodus and Joshua. Now he's like, like a survey of the Old Testament. And so he's not going to list every story, but he's going to use some generalities. But we can really um, see, there's, there's really, like, three sections of this final portion. Um, first of all, the first section you have here, is um, you have the triumphant heroes of the faith who did amazing accomplishments through God's power. So let's look at the list there in verse um, 32. What shall I say for time would fail to tell him? He's like, I could go on and on, but I don't really have time to do that because this is a sermon. If I keep droning on and on, you'll, you'll fall asleep. Because <laughs> remember, this is a sermon. But he says, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, um, and on and on and on. Um, and so let's just start with these characters that he lists. Gideon is the first one he, he talks about. How does how's Gideon introduced? We don't have time. We really don't have time to go back. He says we don't have time to go back. So we're just going to kind of do an overview of these guys. What do we know about Gideon? He's a cowardly guy hiding among the luggage when the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, I'm picking you to be the leader of my people. And Gideon's like, say what? Me? And how does Gideon respond? In, in, in Judges 6.12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Yeah, right. He's the mighty man of valor hiding among the luggage. But God does an amazing thing. What's the weird military strategy? Do you remember the story of, of, of um, Gideon against the Midianites? Water down your yeah, you've got too many people. You've, 32,000 is way too much. So narrow it down. 10,000 is way too much. I want you to get down to 300. Get down to a ragtag band of 300 men, and then you're going to totally annihilate the army. What was the size of the army that the 300 men annihilated? Judges 7:12, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as sand that's on the seashore in abundance. Now, we aren't given a number, but does that sound like a lot? Anytime the Bible uses sand on the seashore, that's a big number. 300, but they win the battle. Okay. What about Barak? It says Gideon Barak. Or Barak. <laughs> we find his story in Judges 4, 13-16. Again, he was a military leader with a very small army of around 10,000 men. He went to fight against the great army of Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots. Barak obeyed God's word through Deborah, and again routed the foreign army. Okay. Samson. Samson's one of those interesting characters. You don't know whether, what to think about Samson. I mean, he's listed as a judge. He's in the Hall of Faith. But you look at his life and you're like, this dude blew it on a lot of occasions. <laughs> Three things about Samson. Nazarite. What's the Nazarite vow? Don't shave your head. Don't be around dead bodies. And don't drink wine. And by the way, don't marry foreign women either. <laughs> Breaks all three of those. And his hair becomes his downfall. And, but anyway... At the end of his life, though, in Judges 16, 28-30, even when his eyes were plucked out and he was called out to entertain the Philistines in their temple to the false god Dagon, he did pray and ask God to give him strength and he leaned against the two pillars of the temple and caused the temple to come crashing down 
on everyone. So it really was, in a moment of weakness, he'd been strong his whole life, but in his moment of extreme weakness and humiliation, God answered his prayer, and he ended up killing more in that one moment than he killed in his entire life, in a moment of weakness, when God kind of like learned his lesson finally at the end of his life when he, his eyes were plucked out. Jephthah, I don't understand why he's in here, but um, it's the scripture. Jephthah, he was the shady character who made a rash vow, remember? He made the vow that the next person that walks in, Yeah, it was his wife. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, the first person, yeah. I'm getting that confused with uh, Saul's rash. Saul had a rash vow with Jonathan. Jephthah had one and ends up killing up his, his own daughter. So we wonder why he's on the list. But, but the scriptures tell us that God used him mightily as a man of faith. And he was a son of a prostitute, and yet he led the Israelites to defeat the Ammonites. Okay. So you, you think that's part of the reason he's on the list? I mean, part of the reason he's on the list is because there's no yeah there's no world that, yeah yeah I mean again these aren't superheroes we need to remember this is not the hall of superheroes these are people that were judged and then saw yeah so David well we know about David we spent all summer talking about the life of David um, remember when he goes um, into battle with Goliath in, in 1 Samuel 17, 26. And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done but for the one who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? If you remember back, I don't know if you remember back the sermon series this summer, but that word defy, David kept using it over and over again. David's main concern was that the name of the Lord would be defied, would be, would be desecrated. And then he makes that great confession to, to Goliath when he's standing there David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you dead and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines, this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with spear, are not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. We can go on and on about David. We see in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice. That could be talking about David. Um, we do know that he did conquer kingdoms. He united Israel under one monarchy. He enforced justice as a king. Um, it says Samuel. What do we know about Samuel? He was really one of the greatest transitional men in Israel's history. He, he was the last, he's considered really the last judge and the first prophet. God used him in mighty ways to prepare Israel for King David. Um, next to Moses, he's probably one of the greatest prophetic leaders um, in Israel's history. He's yeah he, heard the, yeah, he heard the voice of the Lord in the temple with Eli. He's especially remembered in 1 Samuel 7 as praying for Israel at Mizpah where God intervened to break the Philistine stronghold on Israel. He was a man of integrity and righteousness all the days of his life and was faithful in proclaiming God's word. Okay, then we have the, the prophets. Okay, who are the prophets? Well, yeah. 
Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the other 12 prophets we have books written about in the Old Testament. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. Who's that talking about? Daniel in the lion's den. In Daniel 6, 22 through 23, My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted in his God. What, is it, what does verse 34 say? Quench the power of fire. Who do we know quench the power of fire? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those guys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And this is an amazing statement of faith. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Do you notice the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What, what did they say? Even if God doesn't save us physically, we're still not bowing down to you, Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to bow down to these false gods. And what do you know from the rest of the story? There was a fourth one in the fire. Who was that? It's up for debate. Okay, it says here, Who escaped the edge of the sword? Probably talking about Elijah. He escaped the edge of the sword from the ruthless threats of Queen Jezebel in 1 Kings 19. Could be Gideon and Samson. Um, it could be King David. Um, probably, I mean, probably, most probably Elijah. Um, were made strong out of weakness, mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. You remember those two stories? There's two stories in the Old Testament, of, in both in Elijah and Elisha's prophetic ministry. In 1 Kings 17, the poor widow from Sidon's son was brought back to life by Elijah. And in 2 Kings 4, the wealthy Shunammite woman's son was brought back by Elisha. So there were two Old Testament bringing back from the dead. Okay, those were the mighty acts. The second part here is not so much the mighty acts, but those who were persecuted and tortured. So he's shifting to a group of people who were persecuted for their faith. Look at verse um, the second half of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Um, we already talked about this. Um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me remind you that authentic faith does not mean perfection. Most of these men had some major sin problems. Remember, Noah got drunk, Abraham lied, Isaac was a poor father, Jacob was a deceiver, Moses had an anger problem that kept him out of the promised land, Rahab was a prostitute. 
right after Gideon routes the army with 300 men. He is guilty of gross idolatry. Samson was a man of uncontrollable lust, whose passion for women was his downfall. Jephthah made a very rash vow that ended up with his precious daughter being killed. And what do we need to say about David? He was an adulterer with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered. These men were fallen, inconsistent, slow to obey, and oftentimes sidetracked with sin. And yet God in His amazing grace used them to do amazing things. Remember this. It's not the greatness of your faith but the greatness of the object of your faith, Jesus Christ alone. God can use you powerfully to do great things. He's not looking for perfection, but obedience. All right, I got ahead of myself. Now, second part. Now the focus shifts to those heroes who were empowered to persevere through the most extreme difficulties. Okay? Some were... Tortured. Tortured. In the original language, it speaks of a type of torture where a person is stretched on a rack and their stomach is used like a drum and they're beaten to death. This is probably speaking about a 90-year-old scribe named Eleazar who refused to eat pork and was tortured to death. Now you may say, well, I don't remember that story in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's, it's recorded in, in what's called the intertestamental books, the, the Apocrypha. The uninspired books about what happens between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We find this in 2 Maccabees. Now, these are uninspired books, but they are, they do, they are historical. So this historically happened. And so the writer of Hebrews is alluding to something in, in Jewish history. It's not recorded in Scripture, but really happened. So most scholars believe he's probably talking about the torture of Eleazar. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. You remember what prophet was in prison a lot? Jeremiah. Speaking of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he was mocked, flogged, chained, and imprisoned on many occasions throughout his life. Jeremiah 20, verse 2, Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet, put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. In Jeremiah 37, 15, and the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made into a prison. Verse 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Probably speaking of Zechariah the prophet, he was stoned in the temple courtyard. In Second Chronicles 24, 20 through 21. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he's forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. How would you like that? He's a preacher in the temple calling the people to repentance. And how do they respond to him? Their hearts were not melted like Rahab. They stoned him. They stoned a prophet of God in the temple. Now, how bad is that? That's got to be. That's got to be like one of the worst things Israel could do. Stone one of God's messengers in the actual temple. That's 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 pretty shocking. Jesus himself accused the Jews of stoning the prophets in Matthew twenty-three. 34 through 35, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes 
some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So Jesus is even saying, like the first martyr Abel all the way to the last martyr in the Old Testament and in between, you guys are always doing that, and you're going to continue to do that. And by the way, you're going to, you're going to put me to death. This is not in Scripture, but it's kind of legend, like it's kind of traditional view that Jeremiah was stoned to death by unbelieving Jews in Egypt. Remember the remember Jeremiah was taken off into exile, but he did not end up going up to Babylon. He went down to Egypt, and they think that a bunch of Jews that were with him, he kept trying to preach to them the gospel, and they they stoned him to death. Now, that's not in the Bible; it's just kind of a, a traditional view. It also says some were sawn in two. This again is not in the Bible, but um, there's ancient Jewish writings that have traditionally taught this was referring to Isaiah. That he fled into the hill country and hid in a tree, and the tree was sawn in two, thus severing Isaiah in two as well. Again, that's not in the Bible, but it's more of a Jewish tradition that that's how Isaiah uh, died. Some went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. We know from Scripture that... um, Elijah and Elisha wore goat skins as clothes, which is often associated with the school of the prophets. Um, in 2 Kings 1.8, they answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, It is Elisha the Tishbite. Okay? But notice what verse 38 says. So, so we're done. Okay, here we are done with the listing of all the Old Testament characters. Here's a summary statement. Verse 38 of whom the world was not worthy, well, I guess he's still talking about these guys, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves on the earth. But notice what he says there. The world was not worthy of them. This persecuting, pagan, godless world was not worthy of these great men of faith who suffered. Now, let's think about immediate context. Who's, who's the audience here? Persecuted, suffering, Christians, possibly in Rome, who are are of Jewish descent, who are tempted to go back to Judaism. This would have been a great encouragement to these struggling Hebrew Christians who were facing imprisonment and persecution. They could look at these examples of faith who died for their faith or were severely treated and would know that their reward is not on this earth. They're looking for a greater reward, a better country, a heavenly city. Okay, so we're done with all of the characters. Now, verse 39 and verse 40 is basically a summation of everything that he said. Okay? Go back to verse 1. Actually, verse 2. Hebrews 11, verse 2. How does he start? Let's start with verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. They received their commendation. Verse 39. All these, though commended, receiving their commendation through faith, what happened? They did not receive what was promised. Now, what does that mean? They did not see the Messiah. Yeah. The first thing we see is that 
both triumphant victors and the tragic victims were commended through their faith. But none of them received what was promised. Did Enoch ever see Jesus? Did Moses? Did Gideon? Did Noah? Did David? Did any of these Old Testament ever get to see Messiah, Jesus, in the flesh, on earth, die on the cross, and rise again? No. They didn't see any of that. And so the question we have to ask here is, what did they not receive that was promised to them? Well, I think that the question is answered by this. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They could only look forward to the coming Messiah. But it wasn't until Jesus came and died and instituted the new covenant that they would get what was promised. In light of all these people, the power of God on their side and everything, um, they were only looking forward. But look at verse 40. Very interesting. What does verse 40 say? Since God provided something better for better for us. What? Better for us. That apart from us, they should be not be made perfect. What, what in the world does he mean here? He's shifting to us. He's, he's saying, okay, we're tied into this somehow. Up to this point, the writer's been focusing entirely upon them, the Old Testament heroes of the faith. But now he says that God has provided something better for us. What's the better for us? They were made perfect. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, what does the word perfect mean here in the, in the book of Hebrews? It really means complete, finished, coming to maturity. Um, in Hebrews 10.1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, they can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What was the insufficiency? We talked about this like many months, many weeks ago when we were back in chapter 10. What was the insufficiency of the Old Testament? What could it never do? It could never make a person perfect. It could never complete a person. It could never bring full salvation. It was only a type and shadow. It was only a picture. It was only once a year. And then they had to do it every year. Um, it, never, it never brought you complete. But we have something these people never got to experience. What's the one thing we have that they didn't have? We've got, we're on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection. And so think about it this way. No matter how good things were in the Old Testament, and no matter how successfully faithful these heroes of the faith were, they could never be complete. They could never be perfected. They had to only look forward by faith to the day when all things would be made complete. But notice what Hebrews 10.14 says. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It wasn't complete until Jesus came and died and rose again. All they had was to look forward to that day. But He ties us to them. So here's the issue. In Christ, we've been united to these Old Testament people. They're our ancestors. They're our forebears. They're our many cloud of witnesses. 
We are in the long line of believers throughout the ages who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation and are living a life of faithful obedience to Him. So these are your people. Okay? You're in this lineage. These people are your people. Okay? So this should give you great confidence. So we live a life of faith in a hostile culture. Sometimes we'll experience wonderful victories. Other times we'll experience tremendous hardships. In either case, the real issue is that through Christ, He empowers us to persevere to the end. And yet here's the challenge. If the Old Testament saints endured persecution and lived with radical faith and yet only had a small glimpse of the promise of Christ, how much more should we be people of faith who have the whole story? What little information they had about heaven and Jesus was enough for them to risk it all. They only had bits and pieces, types and shadows. How much more should we risk it all now that we have the full story? In other words, let's put it this way. This is maybe a little, little, little stinging. There's no excuse for us not to have the same kind and even more dynamic faith in these ancient Old Testament believers. We've got Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, something those guys never had. So, what does faith do? Faith takes risks. Faith is radical. Be one who's totally, passionately, obediently surrendered to the Lordship of Christ alone. And as James would say in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves.